Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter-Gidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. A member of the crocodile family, the American alligator is a living fossil from the age of reptiles, surviving on Earth for over 200 million years. That's right, guys. Today's podcast is all about the alligator, Louisiana's state reptile. My name is Jeb Linscombe. I'm the Fern Alligator Program Manager for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, and I work out of the Lafayette office. The goals of LDWF's alligator program are to manage and conserve Louisiana's alligators as part of the state's wetland ecosystem, provide benefits to the species, its habitat, and other species of fish and wildlife associated with alligators. Wild harvest, which takes place um, in the month of September, it takes place statewide. Of course, the vast majority of the harvest is in the coastal zone, which is about a three and a half million acre wetland complex. Uh, the second large program is our farming and ranching program, where we collect alligator eggs and farmers incubate them and grow the alligators out on, in a farm environment, both for the hide and for the meat. And then they return 10% of what they hatch back to the wild. And so that return program is part of the farm program. And then the third part of the program is our nuisance control program. We have approximately 50 licensed alligator nuisance hunters um, that normally are assigned to one or two parishes, and sometimes we'll have anywhere from one to two or three trappers per parish, depending upon the volume of alligators that we have. Some parishes obviously have more nuisance issues than others. And you can call in to the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and you can report a nuisance alligator. And if that nuisance alligator um, is deemed an uh, actual nuisance, we'll assign a complaint, and a nuisance hunter will be dispatched to remove that animal. So, again, that's the three major components, the wild harvest, which takes place in September, the farming program, and the nuisance control program. Alligators have been harvested for some 200 years. They were first harvested in Louisiana in great numbers in the early 1800s. These alligators were harvested for their skins, which were used to make boots, shoes, and saddles. Also for their oil, which was used to grease steam engines and cotton mills. In the, in the 50s, in the 40s and 50s, alligator populations were, were driven down. At the time, we thought almost to the point of extinction. Likely, they, they were never close to extinction. However, they were driven down to very, very low numbers. And so they shut down the harvest completely. And, and, of course, this low population was a direct result of a black market um, where hides were being harvested and shipped overseas to, to, to be tanned, but there was no tracking. So we completely shut down the harvest. In that time period, my predecessors did research on biology and reproduction. And in the early 1970s, decided that they could slowly open up a harvest. But not only did they open up a harvest, they required all harvests to only be done if you acquired a CITES tag. CITES stands for the Convention for the International Trade of Endangered Species. So all foreign countries will only accept hides if it has a CITES tag on it. And by doing this, they essentially eliminated uh, all black market harvest. And, and my predecessors also had the foresight to develop a program around something that would give value to private landowners. And, and this is tremendously important to understand. Again, we have Louisiana. In, in Louisiana, we have alligators all throughout the entire state. But the vast majority of the population is in the coastal zone. And the vast majority of that coastal zone, about 80% plus, is owned by private landowners. So my predecessors knew they had to develop a program that would give some sort of benefit to those private landowners. And that would in turn give them incentive to protect the alligator population. But more importantly, not just protect the alligator population, protect the wetlands that that alligator population existed within. And, and that's that's what exactly what happened. So 
Alligators, unlike a lot of other species, such as waterfowl and deer, uh, are a commercial harvest. They're not a recreational harvest, although we do have recreational opportunities. We have lottery hunts. Some some landowners use their alligator tags as, as a recreational type of hunt. But by and large, the historical hunt has almost always been a commercial harvest, which, again, gives value to the species. And ultimately, ultimately, that value is exponentially more important to the wetlands than it is to the actual population of alligators. In fact, any, any benefit you have when someone protects a wetland uh, for alligators is one thing, but that protection benefits literally thousands of other species of birds, fish, mammals, amphibians, and um, anything you can think of. There's habitat types in coastal Louisiana that you have alligators in that will, you know, facilitate perfectly healthy growth of alligators, but, but will not facilitate reproduction or nesting. So when we talk about valuable alligator habitat we're talking about fecundity we're talking about reproduction so salt marsh for example again we have alligators but there's no nesting in it so what you really need is you need brackish or intermediate marsh to some extent swamp is good habitat it's not as good of nesting habitat as fresh intermediate and brackish marsh typically speaking you know open water obviously is not good for nesting um, but also additionally a solid stand of emergent vegetation is also not good for nesting because there's no food source there for the alligators to nest. So you may have nesting in those areas, but low densities. So that roughly about 50-50 land-to-water ratio with good emergent vegetation is the best type of nesting habitat. Now, different species of, of nesting material is better than others. For example, wiregrass or Spartana patens is better than, say, bull tongue or Sagittaria, which does facilitate nesting but has lower hatchability uh, due to low oxygen and um, higher temperatures. Egg clutches range from anywhere to 20 eggs in a clutch to maybe upwards of 40 or 50. I would say a, a, a decent statewide average would be about 30, 30, 30 eggs in a clutch. Now, that doesn't mean all 30 eggs in a normal, healthy female, all, all 30 eggs are fertile. That, of course, is not always the case. Um, in terms of nest densities in a, in, a, in a coastal wetland, a really, really high density would be like a nest per 20 acres, one nest per every 20 acres. A really, really low density could be, uh, you know, a nest per thousand per thousand acres in, in some wetlands that are just not really, really suitable to alligator nesting. And alligators are territorial, right? So well, they, they are territorial, but typically females are not necessarily ter- territorial. Um, they, they are territorial in defending their nest, but... But they have a very, very small home range around that nest. So you will see areas with really, really high nest densities very close to each other. Now, large males can be very, very territorial. And, of course, alligators are very, very cannibalistic. And large males tend to not tolerate um, smaller alligators in their area, period, whether it's other males or females. Oh, interesting. So it's only during the breeding season that they really intermingle? Correct. And how long does uh, a female alligator stay with her egg? Does she wa- stay with them at the, the nest until the, they ha- the hatchlings are we, sufficient? Actually, she will, she will stay in the proximity of the nest. She's not necessarily going to protect those hatchlings the way, say, a, a, a mammal would directly protect them it's more of an instinctual thing where she's guarding the nest instinctually and and those hatchlings are in the proximity so she's inadvertently protecting them 
from predators like birds, raccoons, um, otters, other any any other mammalian predator. Survival of alligator hatchlings in the wild is extremely, extremely low. Ultimately, the vast majority of those alligator hatchlings will succumb to some sort of fatality, whether it's natural mortality uh, like disease, starvation, or actually cannibalism, or depredation other species such as even birds. Large birds can eat alligator hatchlings, but... The bottom line is the vast majority of those hatchlings succumb to some sort of mortality. And so that's why we started the alligator farming and ranching program because we realized that, and now we're down to 10% releases, that only roughly 10% of those alligator hatchlings are going to make it to be a 48-inch or 4-foot alligator anyway. So you can utilize that extra stock and return the recruitment, the 10%, that you would have ended up with at that length anyway. And it's a sliding scale. So you got to return 10% at 48 inches. If you have alligators slightly larger, you don't have to return quite as many. If it's slightly smaller, you have to return more. So we will only accept a return um, that has to be at least 32 inches and no bigger than 60 inches. And really, the annual nest survey is the beginning of all three of the other programs. So Since 1972, on an annual basis, without fail, we have flown transects, north and south transects, from the Texas state line all the way to the Mississippi state line in the coastal zone, uh, which again is a three and a half million acre wetland complex, and we're monitoring reproduction. So we're flying that nest survey in late June, early July, uh, and counting nests in all of the coastal parishes and all of the different marsh types, fresh, intermediate, brackish. We don't have a lot of nesting in salt, very, very low densities. So we don't really count salt marsh, but we're using those nest densities uh, in that estimate of reproduction as a way to monitor the population. The egg collection program is similar to the wild harvest in that a landowner brings in a parcel of property. And in this case, we issue a permit, but it's a three-way permit. So it's a permit between a licensed alligator farmer, a landowner, and the third party is actually us, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And it's a permit agreement that that farmer can go out on that property and pick the eggs on the property. And we set a quota, and the quota is not not to limit them. The quota is, is to try to estimate what's out there. Obviously, you can't pick five thousand eggs on one acre of property so it's 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 try to to try to keep people honest so to speak so when they we give them this permit they then pick the eggs they pay the landowner for those eggs they bring the eggs back to their form incubate them and at 48 inches long they return 10 percent to the wild and that's another huge um labor burden on the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, we we actually touch every single one of those alligators that goes back in a release. So we go out to the farm and we measure each animal, sex it. We actually tag it with a unique identifier uh, and enter that data into the system. And then the farmer goes and releases those alligators back to the specific parcel of property where the, you know where they were originally collected. Well, that, but that's interesting because there's a there's the possibility. I mean, I'm, surely it's happened where during the alligator harvest, you collect some of those animals back that you had previously tagged and released back into the wild. Correct. So a, a huge part of the wild harvest is collection. Um, of data in terms of the sex ratio of the harvest. We collect the sex ratio because the whole premise of the harvest is it's about 70% male and about 30% female. And really, it's like many species, the the females are more important to the survival of the population than the males. In addition to sex ratio data, we're collecting retrap data, which is farm retrap data. And we, we since we have that data in the system, we know how large the animal was when it was released and what year it was released. So we're, we're collecting growth data for farm release animals. And it's also allowed us, after several decades of release data, it's actually allowed us to do some pretty sophisticated analysis of, of survival and to look at are, are those animals we're returning to the wild from forms 
actually surviving at a rate that's similar to the wild. And interestingly enough, this, the, the data has shown that. Uh, that that 10% we're returning back to the wild is is surviving at the same rate that wild alligators survive. I guess the most important point I want to make about the alligator farming program is is the same point that I made earlier about the wild harvest. The importance of the alligator farming program is the value that it places for the landowner on those wetlands. It, it ultimately gives incentive to that landowner to protect that habitat to be the best possible habitat that it is for alligator nest production. And in turn, inadvertently, it's giving them the, incent- the incentive to protect and maybe even in some cases restore those wetlands, which is beneficial to not just alligators. It's beneficial to hundreds, if not thousands of species of birds, mammals, fish, reptiles, and amphibians. The harvest is split into two zones, an east and west zone, and you can find those east and west zone maps on our website, uh, at which is lagatorprogram.com, along with a lot of other information about the alligator program, most of which we talked about today. And and those east and west zones are set up as a way to allow processors to keep up with the harvest, so to speak. There's there there's a limited number limited number of processors um, and really really skilled skinners that that have the ability to skin these animals without messing up the hide. If you were simply skinning the animal for meat consumption and throwing away the hide, it wouldn't be as critical. But since this piece of um, or since this hide will be turned into a piece of leather it's very critical that the skinner um, has a skill set that not everyone happens has so we we set up an east and west zone so the eastern zone opens up every year the same and on the same day it's the first or excuse me it's the last wednesday in august and the west zone opens the first wednesday in september and that's every year you need to look at the map that's posted at alligatorprogram.com or you can contact louisiana department of wildlife and fisheries in either the lafayette office the baton rouge office or really any of our district offices what prompts somebody to apply um for the the harvest the annual harvest well historically again it's been for the commercial value so landowners in coastal louisiana have several things that the land is valuable for. One of them's oil and gas. One of them's waterfowl leases. One of them's trapping. One of them's deer hunting. Another is alligator eggs. Another is the wild alligator harvest. And so historically, that has been the primary value. Again, there's not a lot of turnover in that. We're, we're issuing the same landowner's tags from year to year. However, some small private landowners with small parcels of wetlands or even district land like rice that will also have alligators will apply and they may be applying for a parcel of land that only gets two or three alligator tags or even maybe one alligator tag. Most of those types uh, of landowners are, are really hunting for re- for recreation. They may sell the alligator, or they may choose to keep the skin and tanna themselves, or or consume the meat themselves. Um, but it is more of a recreational hunt, and that allows them to also somewhat control the population on their how many alligators they have. By it it, it does it does to some extent, although um, the concept that the wild alligator harvest in Louisiana is a control method is really, really a huge myth. And and the reason is, is even in a year when we're harvesting 35,000 plus animals, that's still a very, very minimal or minuscule portion of the population that's out there. So it's not really, it's not really controlling the population or suppressing the population in any, in any sense. Although, although it does have some nuisance control value to it. So if a landowner has, a landowner can have one or two tags or they can have 2000 tags and they can choose to use those tags in areas where they may or may not have quote unquote real nuisance animals that have become um, a problem, say, to livestock or, or something of that nature. 
Most harvesting is done in canals and not back interior wetlands, interior marsh, which is where nesting occurs. So nesting occurs in June and early July. And in August and September, those females, those mature nesting size females are still back in the marsh. And typically in bigger open canals, lakes and bays, you, you, you have bigger territory or males. So you're, you're targeting a portion of the population. Um, they are apex predator, but from the time they're a hatchling to four foot long, they're a very, very small animal. And something, you know, a great blue heron can, um, will routinely actually depredate on alligator hatchlings. Fish, uh, even even um, species of fish will depredate on hatchling mammals. Any, anything you can think of, they they're susceptible to depredation. And then once they hit that four foot length, yes, obviously once they hit that four foot higher length, it's it's then really the only predator on alligators becomes alligators themselves. You know, the important thing to remember about alligators is to, to keep a safe distance and, and to view them away from them. Typically speaking, alligators are more fearful of humans than you are of them. They don't want to come close to you. The exception is when an alligator is fed. And probably one of the, you know, the most irresponsible things someone can do is feed alligators. If you feed alligators, you will habitualize them to human presence. And in fact, if you go back and you look at attacks in Florida, um, a very, very high percentage of those attacks are associated with alligators that have been fed. So if you keep your distance, typically they're, they're not a problem. Typically speaking, what we call a true nuisance animal is obviously an animal eight foot or larger in an urban environment, in an environment that it's not supposed to be in, is a nuisance. Um, when you have smaller animals like four foot alligators, they're not really uh, much of a threat to humans and, and really not much of a threat to even pets. However, if those animals, if those animals are in an urban environment, we, we will relocate those animals to an area um, where they're not a threat. And um, can you give some examples? Like, I mean, you know, you, you hear about alligators in swimming pools in Florida a lot of times. But here in Louisiana, what kind of situations does here that Here in Louisiana, we're, we're, we're fortunate that we don't have um, nearly the interaction with humans and alligators that you have in Florida. And, and that's, that's primarily for one reason. And that reason is that our coastal zone, that three or four million acre wetland complex, is primarily along the coast and it's not inundated with urban sprawl or an urban environment. Whereas Florida's wetlands are very, very different. Florida's wetlands span from the top of the state all the way to the bottom of the state. They're smaller complexes, and they have urban sprawl throughout those wetlands. So they typically, uh, there's more of an interaction between humans and alligators than there is here in Louisiana. So, so um, that's one reason that we have. Fortunately, um, we 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 have far far fewer real attacks on humans than than occur in Louisiana. I mean, excuse me, occur in Florida. What kind of alligator attacks? I mean, is this like when people is it? Who does this really occur with? People who are swimming where they shouldn't be actually in louisiana on record we have very very few attacks we have actually less than a handful of attacks um most of them were accidental somebody was just in the proximity of an alligator that they were not aware of and they were bitten like on the arm Ted Joannan and Larry McNeese were two biologists historically at Rockefeller Wildlife Refuge that did the early primary biologists. Dr. Ruth Elsie and Noel Kindler were also huge assets to the program that we have today. So Rockefeller is about or was about an 85,000 acre wetland refuge that E.A. McElhenney, who 
um, is the founder of Tabasco Sauce, donated to the state of Louisiana, and he did a very, very great deed when he donated it. He mandated that any revenue on the property had to stay on the property and be used to manage, you know, the, the refuge itself. And because of that, that allowed my predecessors to have the funding to do the research that they did, you know, in the early part of the program. And McElhenney himself was was a he was a very much a hunter, but he was also very much a conservationist in that he was concerned about wetlands being pumped off in coastal Louisiana and turned into agriculture, and that, and that's why he was instrumental in uh, securing these lands and turning them into state refuges, not only to protect you know wet those wetland habitats but encourage research in the in in the future and so rockefeller became sort of really the birthplace of alligator research and management as well as wetland management in coastal louisiana and in terms of alligators really the birthplace of crocodilian research worldwide so when you go to the csg which is the crocodile specialist group which is a group of crocodile alligator and crocodile researchers worldwide, that group actually looks at the Louisiana model as the the best way to manage crocodilians in any place in the world. And again, that model is to place a value on the animal so that landowners, and in the case of, say, South Africa, tribal people place a value on that animal so that that animal is not just a nuisance to them and they have a reason to protect that animal and its habitat i guess the um obvious trend that that i've seen is that we have continued to have um higher and higher nesting densities over the past two decades. So we th- at one point thought that we may be reaching carrying capacity, in ter- at least in carrying capacity in terms of nesting density. So again, carrying capacity in the total population number versus carrying capacity of the number of nests you have are, are two different things. Um, we thought we had potentially reached that threshold or that carrying capacity and then in the past four or five years we've had extremely extremely high water levels in coastal Louisiana higher than normal and and that's actually led to record record production years um, not only last year but the past five years. I think that's one of the only times I've ever heard that those record high water levels listed as a benefit for something. Um, You don't hear that very often. Correct. So nesting is highly, highly dependent upon water levels. So the biology of the species is such that they key off on water levels. So they begin developing eggs. However, the female has the ability to reabsorb the ovum into her body if she decides not to nest. And in the, situ- in the case of a drought, you, you see that. You see very, very low nesting densities. And it's not, it's not really detrimental to the population. It's part of the overall uh, biology and cycle of the species. You, it's very cyclical. So you, you'll see nesting be very, very low and then in some years be very, very high. And it's, it's really mostly driven by water levels and um, that obviously that's the way it's been for thousands of years and so it doesn't have to be really really high every year or or very high at all to sustain um, the population this is kind of silly is it true that if you count the inches between the eyes and the nostrils that's how many feet of length that alligator is actually that that is true that is that's okay. one of the few myths about alligators that actually does work fairly well obviously it's not perfectly exact but it is a good rule of thumb what about running zigzagging if you're running away from i think that's a myth (laughs) (laughs) Uh, alligators so alligators are primarily made of white muscle tissue which means that they burn in energy anaerobically which means that they build up lactic acid really quickly so alligators have tremendous, tremendous 
explosion potential in terms of the amount of energy that they can put out. So they're really, really quick, really, really fast. But because that white muscle tissue builds up lactic acid, they actually don't last very long. Ah, so you just got to outrun them. Really, (laughs) that's what you have to do. What do alligators do uh, this time of year when it's kind of chilly outside? Right now, alligators are still basically in a period of what we call senescence. They're not really hibernating, so to speak, the way a, a bear hibernates, but they are essentially down in the mud in a hole, and they've dropped their metabolism down very, very low, and essentially they need no food um, and and actually less oxygen. And then when it starts warming up in the spring, they'll come out as soon as the sun's out, and the air temperature is higher than the water temperature, that's when all of a sudden you'll see alligators everywhere because what they do is they thermoregulate with the air temperature in the sun. So they're going to come out of the water, get on the bank, and actually warm themselves up with the sun. So we should use them as our Louisiana groundhog, right? They sort of are. They sort of are. It's it's fairly obvious um, when that period that the air temperature is higher than the water temperature happens because all of a sudden they're they're uh, basking everywhere you go. I guess one of the things I find most interesting about alligators is they are what we refer to as a, a prehistoric species. So their uh, physiology is different than most of everything else that um, veterinarians study. It's very, very different. They're very tolerant to a tremendous amount of disease and things like injuries. So alligators routinely are seen in the wild missing limbs, missing large portions of their tail, and and that is because of that prehistoric physiology that makes them immune to many, many different types of disease. I guess the last thing uh, that I would like to share is that Again, I want to encourage people to call the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries when they feel like they have a nuisance issue, and we will send a nuisance trapper out there free of charge to remove that animal. The best thing for you to do is keep a safe distance from it and allow for us to get there and remove the animal and just keep pets away from them, keep children away from them until we can get there and remove the animal. You can call any district office. You can call the Lafayette office. You can call the Baton Rouge office or the other smaller district offices, or you can call our 1-800 number, which is 1-800-OPERATION-GAME-THIEF, and to report a nuisance alligator anywhere in the state of Louisiana. Find out more about the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and all of their services, including alligator management and nuisance control at www.wlf.louisiana.gov. We also talked to a nuisance hunter in St. Mary Parish. Uh, my name is Ryan Smith, and I'm from St. Mary Parish. Uh, my All of my nuisance stuff is actually a sideline job. I'm an 18-year public school teacher in St. Mary Parish also. I got into it, um, you know, kind of over the years. It was mutual acquaintances. Uh, it's always something that I've been interested in. Uh, grew up kind of working at seafood docks and different things throughout um, high school and college. And this became available uh, really for me, um, certain alligators, where Mr. Dupree, who is in my parish, St. Mary Parish, retired and you know, it just kind of kind of led to an opening. There's anybody you talk to, once you give them your name and uh, location, your address, they're going to issue you a nuisance complaint number, And which actually anywhere in the state, this is the same process. But in St. Mary Parish specifically, once you call these guys and give them your location and your zip code, they're going to issue you a nuisance complaint number and a cell phone number to the nuisance hunter in your parish, which in St. Mary would happen to be me. And then that person calls me gives me the address, gives me the nature of the complaint, and then I respond to the call. And whether it's relocated or harvested, you know, I don't really know that until I figure out what size alligator that we're dealing with. I mean, once they call me, you know, I, I have the luxury of a pretty lenient schedule. We get off of school at 2.30, and, I'm, you know, I'm off on weekends and holidays and all summer, actually. So when the majority of my calls during the hot weather, uh, I'm off for two and a half months. 
Um, so I, I normally respond within as little as a couple of hours to, you know, maybe if I'm tied up with some other calls, if you call me in the morning, it'll be at least by lunchtime of that evening. Nothing goes more than about 12 hours. Definitely. And, you know, it kind of depends on if you call me and tell me there's been an alligator behind your house for three months mm-hmm. and it's swimming by your dock. I know that I need to get to that this evening. And if you tell me that there's a eight-foot alligator underneath your car in your carport, that becomes a little little more urgent, you know, takes precedence over possibly some other things. Um, so w- what I try to do is take all of the calls and address them in order of urgency. Yes, my nuisance work is uh, year-round. Um, I actually just did my paperwork, uh, not required by the wildlife fisheries, but I kind of keep my own tally and numbers. And, you know, in South Louisiana, with the weather that we have, I actually started, I took the first one on February 27th of 2019, and I took the last one on December 1st of 2019. I probably relocated 75 to 80% of my alligators last year. I try not to put a tag in anything underneath about seven or seven and a half foot. So when I get an alligator that I'm underneath that, that I'm able to relocate, um, I catch it and tape it up and I just bring it down to one of several areas where they're not able to come back in contact with home or private property. Anything that we get through that program is completely funded by the alligator season itself. So for the alligators that I have to relocate, um, every time someone calls in and actually gets a nuisance complaint number and I respond to it, the state pays a stipend per nuisance complaint number. But once again, that's completely funded by other alligator hunters and licensed, and uh, none of it is tax money. Uh, the biggest thing is, um, you know, just, just doing your best not to attract them. You know, in South Louisiana, a lot of people live on the water, and you can do that by not putting anything in the water or making it available. Um, you know, I, I go to some calls sometimes, and they live on the water, and right next to where they've reported that this alligator is coming to their dock every day is a fish cleaning station <laughs> or a boat landing, you know, in their yard where they dump uh, trimmings or seafood or, you know, anything else that they throw overboard. So eventually, you know, they, sometimes that the, the, the nuisance issue of it is actually human created. Now, fortunately enough, a lot of times those are younger alligators where I'm able to catch and relocate rather than harvest. The best thing to do is just to throw uh, the majority of, you, you know, your trash and your seafood or your fish or anything else not near where you're going to be present. Um, kids are going to be present. Animals are going to be present. And for the most part, you know, you may see them swimming up and down or possibly even sunning on the bank, but it's not going to be a regular enough occurrence to actually dictate it being a nuisance. They're going to they're going to just kind of come and go. And, um, you know, you give it a day or two without any any food or anything, they'll be on their way. I've taken some other people, you know, when she's tied up or busy, she comes on about 90 percent of the calls. And when she's tied up or busy, I'll call somebody else to come give me a hand, you know, some muscle. And, you know, when I call somebody else, I know that she's missing. And we always joke about that. We've been doing it enough times now. We can go catch a 9, 10-foot, 11 alligator and literally not talk to each other until we get back in the truck. Because she just knows what is supposed to happen next, whether it be my gun, my throw hook, my fishing pole. Something needs to happen from the truck. She's grabbing another light. Uh, We've caught a lot of alligators after dark and never spoke one word to each other. And whatever I need to happen next is already there before before I asked for it. So she, she by a long shot is the best helper I ever had. Ryan Smith's greatest helper is his wife. Uh, I do have a business and I do have a Facebook page, which is St. Mary Wildlife Solutions. And that'll be for anything that is not alligator related. Um, I have a call now button and they can reach me there. And anything alligator related, they can just call the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries in the Lafayette or Baton Rouge office and contact me that way, and I'll be able to show up and take care of their problems. By placing an economic value on alligators, landowners are offered incentives to not only conserve wetlands, but also enhance them so as to increase the alligator population. Moreover, raw meat and hide values are estimated at over $10 million for the wild harvest and over $40 million for the farm harvest annually. Estimates have been made that the alligator industry is valued at over $50 million annually to Louisiana. The majority of farm and wild alligator skins are being tanned in Singapore, Italy, and France. 
Alligator is high fashion, including Hermes, Gucci, and Louis Vuitton purchasing alligator skins from Louisiana. We'll hear from a Louisiana native who has capitalized on the alligator industry and high fashion. <laughs> my name is Mary Tutwiler, and my company is Cocodri. I was working as a journalist uh, here in Lafayette. I was a journalist for about 25 years among other zigs and zags in my uh, career. Uh, and I got sent by the Independent Weekly, which is where I worked, to the Alligator Tannery here in town. It was uh, bought by uh, Hermes, which is a fashion house in, in France. And so I went to write a business story. And uh, it turned out that the um, director of the tannery was a French count, uh, Bernard de Reynier. And so we got to talking in French and enjoying all of that. And at the end of the interview, I got a tour of the tannery from the very beginning where the raw skins come in the back door to the vault where the finished skins are kept. And I really had never seen an alligator skin that I can remember. Uh, and I was just stunned. Uh, beautifully tanned alligators of this quality uh, come in every single color you can possibly imagine, all kinds of finishes. And so I walked out of the tannery. I bought two small skins because I just couldn't leave them behind. One was this nice shiny cognac and the other one was a beautiful turquoise blue-green like the deep sea. And I took them home and I spent about a year fooling with them because I was scared to death to cut them. I am not a seamstress and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And finally, I, I came up with a um, design for a very small wallet and a small change purse. And I went to some friends of mine who did know what they were doing with a sewing machine. And we researched it and bought a diamond tip needle. And we made these these small wallets, which I still carry to this day. They're the first two coquetry pieces. My daughter was part of that organization. So we're all sitting around the table saying, I think we're onto something. This might be, you know, a product that people would want to buy. And then we had to figure out what to name this company. And my daughter, Katie, came up with coquetry, which is the Cajun French word for alligator. When the Cajuns arrived in Acadiana, they had only had any kind of encounter with crocodiles, Nile crocodiles. Uh, and so they'd never seen the reptiles that swim in our swamps, which is a different uh, creature, the alligator. So they named it coquetry, which is crocodile. And uh, I thought that was a very appropriate name for a uh, French alligator uh, business out of Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> so uh, that's where we went from there. Long before I was ever in the alligator business, I was a pretty serious environmental activist and worked on a lot of issues, uh, water quality being one of them, and you know, knowing about what's going on with the coast and coastal restoration and what a really monster of a problem this is. And when I got into the uh, alligator business, I mean, one, one of the things that once you understand how alligators are protected in Louisiana, you have to go back to the 70s when alligators were very much of an endangered species in Louisiana. And the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries stepped in with a program that is maybe the greatest success of any endangered species uh, program in the country. They brought the alligators back from the edge of extinction um, by regulating them in a, several different ways. One is that they helped create the farming program so that um, alligator eggs are collected from nests in the wild and brought into these farms. They're incubated and hatched. It gives the many small young a much better chance at survival because they're allowed to grow in a protected environment till they're old enough to be released in the wild. And then I think it's 20%, 10% of alligators need to be released back basically where they came from into their own swamps. And so that has allowed the alligators to rebound. Also the tag program where 
you better not have an alligator skin without a tag on it because uh, uh, Wildlife and Fisheries wants to know where you got that skin. So you have to buy a permit to hunt. You get a tag. When you kill an alligator, you put that tag on there. It goes, it, the tannery won't take it without the tag. I won't buy it without the tag. And I can't even sell it without making sure that that tag is in my possession. So if I was, you know, if Wildlife and Fisheries ever came to visit, I can pull out my box of tags. <laughs> so yes, these are all, you know, within your program. Um, and so I don't, by, by creating a way of protecting the alligators and putting their population back into the environment, I mean, that was a huge help with the, to the alligator population. But the other arm of this that's so important is wetland restoration because the alligator, you can't just release an alligator into a degraded area. It needs to have its own proper environment. So what um, Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries is also doing is encouraging landowners, farmers, you know, boat users, everyone to be aware of how the, uh, the wetlands need to be well taken care of. And that that's, I mean, if you know anything about species, if you don't have habitat, it doesn't matter how well you take care of them, that, you know, your, your species will wind up in a zoo. So the habitat has to be uh, created. And that, like from an environmentalist standpoint, that's really important to me, you know, that our state is keeping the water quality and, and working on coastal restoration and making sure our swamps and marshes are healthy for all the other birds and, and amphibians and insects that, you know, that live out there and fish. Oh, let's get back to fashion. Okay, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about fashion. Because <laughs> fashion is, I mean, in my checkered career, which has mostly to do with cooking and writing uh, and raising children and being a, a warrior for the environment, fashion has never crossed my mind, ever. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm got, I've got on rubber boots and blue jeans and a beat-up T-shirt and a, and a sun hat, mostly. But... Working with these skins just sort of opened my eyes to just looking at them in a different way. But I wanted to honor the alligator's beauty. And so I maybe I approach it as much from an artistic standpoint because I'm looking at all these patterns and trying to work with them. And I feel like my bags are, are kind of a, a statement about why alligators are important, you know, from... Yes, they, they're important in the environment, and sure, they're beautiful to have and carry around as a handbag. But if you put those two things together, it's a much more holistic approach to how you are in the world, uh, you know, and kind of honoring the world. And there are a lot of synthetic um, alligator products out there right now that are you know, cowhide stamp to look like alligator or plastic and stuff. And I look at that and that, it kind of makes me sad because uh, they're so beautiful. Um, I, I would wish that if you wanted to have that, you wanted to have the real thing and you would see something so different just in the way you, it feels. It's so, alligator leather is very, very soft and, uh, maybe connect you more with with wild places I feel all that when I'm making things and that that just that gives me a lot of joy what's your favorite product to make whichever <laughs> one I'm making at the moment <laughs> I'm always excited true artist <laughs> That's great. So, and you brought several products in um, to the studio with you today. Um, everything from your uh, clutch purses to the horseshoe shape purses, wallets, coin purses, um, and then some of the uh, skins that you haven't done anything with yet. And you have a variety of colors. You pulled out a purple one and a turquoise one earlier. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think that the coloring kind of helps bring out the dimension and uh complexity of this these beautiful skins i I mean i I couldn't get over like all around the leg area on that unfinished or that raw skin just like what just how how it's different it is and i could still imagine it walking through the marsh you can see the creature 
and yeah, that I, I think that's an inspiration. But I mean, also, like I've had this happen a couple of times. Somebody will come over who wants they don't know what they want, and I'll pull out you know ten or fifteen skins so we can just start looking at color and pattern, and you get giddy. It, because they're so incredibly beautiful. I mean, I have shiny, shiny red skins and, and like, matte soft green or, or you know, bright turquoise. It, it's, you know, and I have skins that look like the way you would expect an alligator to look, like a, a cognac brown or a, a dark green. Um, but it's, it is, it, uh, it's kind of heady because they're, really beautiful and and there are only I think five tanneries in the United States of alligator leather so this is and you have to remember you know um tanning is the second oldest business in (laughs) in the western world uh so it's a very very ancient craft um but basically alligator hunters or farmers kill and skin alligators and they salt them and then they bring them in to the back door of the tannery. So if you go in that way, the floor is covered with rock salt. And uh, then the um, skins are basically bleached of all their color. Most of them are. And so they they become stabilized. And at that point, the skins are just bone white. Uh, it's called crust. The skins are in crust. And then they can wait for whoever wants to buy them and then dye them whatever color they they want to dye them so they're very specific the colors are they have names that I don't know what they relate to and things like that this has been going on a long time I mean this could go back to you know dyeing fabric in in Belgium in 1500 you know or, or back as old as the Phoenicians and their purple dyes that it's a very old industry um but they are dyed. The dyes are not normally natural colors. They're um, chemical dyes. And then the skins are stretched and dried. And then you wind up with these amazing jewel tone alligator skins that are incredibly supple and soft. Nothing that you would expect if you know have encountered an alligator in the wild and no color that an alligator in the wild, you know, would ever be, you know, even though I'm doing something that seems frivolous in the fashion industry, the fact that, that I well know that this would not exist if our wetlands weren't healthy. Uh, and I well know that this would not exist if there weren't really magnificent artisans who work really hard to do this or, you know, a, a, a wonderful web designer who built my website for me. I am really like grateful for my community here and all the people that, that are part of coquetry, you know, in, in different ways. An alligator skin is not like a bolt of fabric. You have to work with the way the grain runs and the way it's shaped. And so it, it just forces you to, think in a different way I think far more creatively and you wind up with something that's turns out to be very personal and uh, that's part of why I like making these things because I want you to be as surprised as astonished as I am when this new thing you know comes and I can give it to you uh, and I mean everything is made here in Lafayette the the workshop where everything is cut and sewn and uh, put together, you know, I, I can go over there and make sure that it's the way I want it to be. And these people are magnificent. They're, they're artists. And so it's good for the economy that everything stays here. Mm -hmm. I know all the taxes go to Louisiana and Lafayette. And, uh, you know, I want people to come to Lafayette and see what I do. I'd rather have them come look at the skins and pick things out, you know, and then go to wherever they live. Because uh, people occasionally will drive in from Texas or, or Alabama or, you know, somewhere else because they want to be part of that process. And that's a lot of fun. I get to meet a lot of people. 
So in the tannery, do they have like proprietary colors? Do they specify in certain hues? Do you go to a different tannery for different colors? Or do you just uh, buy locally? I generally buy locally because I like to go and pick out each skin uh, just for the quality as well as the color. Um, it, it also depends on whether I have my own raw skins and then I, I want them to go all the way through the process. And, I mean, frankly, dyeing is such a tricky thing with alligator, with leather, that you're never exactly sure exactly what color it's going to come out. <laughs> yeah, the, the turquoise, I mean, I've been trying to hit that first turquoise blue that I bought. It's been 10 years. Uh, and we've never been able to reproduce that color. So they're... At least at the, at the tannery here, which is called RTL, most of the people who work there come from France. They're trained in France. And they come and go. And so, you know, some color that somebody achieved might, that person might have gone back to, to Europe, and then we might never see that color again. Uh, and different tanneries have different colors that they do. But I... I if I want to be sure and I need two or three skins to make a piece, you've got to get it all out of the same dye batch. This is similar with fabric. So it doesn't sound like you have too much waste left over when you do when you make these products. I mean, even the scraps can be used. Right. For... And often when I'm making um, like a, a custom bag, I'll choose a skin that's really the right size you know, to, to, so that I can use it all. Cause you don't think about things, but when you're making a bag, you want to line, make the lining around the zipper, um, out of the same leather and, and the pockets that are inside from the leather. And if the bag has a strap and so all of a sudden you're using every single scrap I've given people, um, back, like, here's your purse and a, like a baggie full of what looks like fingernail clippings, which is all that is left of the skin because I've, I've really used every single bit of it. So sometimes I have scraps, and when I do, I make them into like a small wallet or a bracelet. But I try not to. I try to use it all up. So if a person custom orders a piece, and, and, and they, so they buy the skin that goes into mm-hmm. the piece, and then they mm-hmm. get the rest of it back? Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. That's great because, I mean, they might find other uses for it as sure. well. Sure, right? yeah. You know, if you buy a whole skin, you've bought that skin. I'm not going to keep it. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're – and people who make crafty – like like you could cut it out and make leather earrings mm-hmm. but out of, out of the scraps of alligator. Is there uh, a piece, a custom-made piece that really stands out to you as – very special or odd or complicated. One time I made a bicycle seat. <laughs> we covered a bicycle seat with Pepto-Bismol pink alligator to match this. And it was for a guy, this guy's bicycle. He was a racer. And, uh, yeah, I sent that to Maine. <laughs> oh, that's and, neat. Uh, um, as you built out the inventory for Coco Dree, um, did you have in mind what you wanted your standard products to be? Or, or did you – have you – has that grown organically? Totally organically. I, I mean, I started off by making a clutch that used the head, the back of the head of the alligator and the body, and I had a whole tail left. And the tail is beautiful, but with the, that ridge of bone running down the back of it, it's not uh, conducive to, like, to making too many things with it so I came up with a handbag that uses the entire tail as its its reason to be and actually it may be my favorite handbag (laughs) (laughs) so yeah things a lot of times it's it's problem solving and that's a lot of I'm trying to think something else of fun that I made I had a, a piece of a tail and I made a knife scabbard for my grandson. Uh, he Right now he has sticks that he keeps in it, but with a little belt loop so he can hang it on his belt and run around. And he's got a scabbard for his sword. Oh, how, 
cool grandma. Coquetry is mainly um, on the web. Um, the website is, it's spelled C-O-C-O-D-R-I dot com. Um, the town of Coquetry has an E on the end, but <laughs> mine doesn't, so if you get mixed up. <laughs> uh, most of the products are there. My phone number's there. Call me if you have any questions or you have a skin or you just want to chat about alligators. And that's it for today's Coastal Connection. Episodes come out on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. So join us again in just a few weeks when we explore another part of Louisiana's coastal wetlands. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov. Become our friend on Facebook or follow along in our Instagram adventures at quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.